You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining me as usual, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Um, So for listeners, we've got a pretty interesting episode, I think, queued up here today. Uh, We're going to talk about something that's come up in a few of our requests. And I'm actually surprised we haven't done an episode about this uh, to date, as far as I can remember, at least. Uh, So today we'll be dedicating this episode to talking a little bit about the dilemmas that many Asian countries and countries around the world face in determining which suppliers should provide 5G telecommunications technology. Um, And if that sounds a little dry, it's really not. I mean, you might have heard about, uh, obviously, the tensions around Chinese firm Huawei, a tech giant. Uh, We'll get a little bit into why Huawei in particular has raised so many concerns, uh, and particularly concerns um, for the United States, which has been trying to convince its allies to stay away from Huawei and really go with any other company uh, based either um, among other Asian countries, um, such as in South Korea or perhaps even European suppliers. Um, But Prashant, I thought a good place to begin the discussion would just be to clarify what exactly we're talking about when we talk about 5G Mm -hmm. technologies, because I think this often gets bandied about. You sort of hear the term... um, you heard the term 5G kind of thrown into this basket of things we call emerging technologies, right? Uh, so sometimes mm-hmm. you'll hear people talk about 5G in the same breath as, you know, AI and quantum computing and even hypersonic weapons. Uh, but really, these things are all very distinct. And 5G in particular uh, is basically the next generation of mobile communications, uh, telecommunications technology. So in, in most developed countries right now, networks are on what's known as 4G technology. So if you have a smartphone and you live in... Uh, you know, Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, uh, Europe, um, China, Russia, many of these places, yeah, you're probably using 4G uh, networking technology based around standards like LTE. Um, and basically all of these things refer to ways in which uh, telecommunications manufacturers and cell phone manufacturers have basically built up a network leveraging the electromagnetic spectrum to better convey uh, signals via these um uh, via these waves, right? So with 5G, we're looking at a new area of development in that EM spectrum. So there's really two parts to the 5G technology conversation, uh, and the two areas are what's known as sub-6 5G, which is, um, or at least a sub-6 spectrum, which is sub-6 gigahertz waves. And then the more impressive part of 5G technology is what's known as millimeter wave technology. I'll just briefly talk about the difference between the two. So the latter millimeter wave technology is really kind of the big value add for 5G that's most exciting, both for consumers uh, and for governments and militaries. Uh, So what millimeter wave technology allows for is massive transfer bandwidth. So that's massive amounts of data that can be throughput at very fast speeds, right? So that sounds great. But um, what that means in reality is if you're you know, a listener to the Asia Geopolitics podcast, you can download one of our episodes much faster uh, for mm-hmm. average consumers around the world that you know, goes for everything, including watching uh, YouTube or Netflix on your phone or, or what have you. Uh, but for militaries uh, and governments, it also includes the ability to transfer massive amounts of data more quickly. And it also has applications with potentially operating, let's say, autonomous systems, which might need massive amounts of data to analyze their environments and receive new inputs from whoever might be um, controlling 
planning or uh, directing their decision making. So that's just a, an example there. But millimeter wave does have drawbacks. Uh, so one of the major drawbacks is that it's very limited by travel distance. Uh, so the waves don't propagate very well and they get interrupted very quickly by things like structures and trees and even um, even people, right? So it's not like Wi-Fi, which if you have Wi-Fi networking in your house, you'll notice that it penetrates walls fairly well and and goes around for a large area. Uh, the high the high wavelength um, millimeter wave 5G is really is really at the cutting edge, but it does have limitations. So most telecommunications firms uh, that are sort of implementing 5G around the world have chosen kind of one of the two to really focus on. So you know, just as an example, if you're in the United States. Uh, T-Mobile, for example, has sort of been um, pushing millimeter wave in at least six cities around the United States, while a, country, um, while a company like Verizon has claimed a nationwide rollout in, in 5G technology, but is mostly using sub-six spectrum, which is slower uh, technology uh, with, with a different set of benefits. Um, but really, this brings us to uh, kind of the discussion around uh, China and Huawei. So uh, Huawei has been one of the lead innovators in 5G technology, primarily in the sub six realm of the technology. And you know, one of the one of the data points that I think is really revealing is that Huawei, in many ways, has positioned itself to hold, for example, the largest family of patents in 5G technologies, uh, holding more than its close um, the companies that are closely trailing it, including uh, Nokia and Samsung. So, as of April 2019. Huawei had over 1,500 patents, uh, while Nokia and Samsung uh, had 1,400 and 1,300 roughly, um, um, respectively. And what that's meant is that Huawei not only has been able to position itself as a technology leader in the 5G space, but has also been able to um, rely on its scale to basically underprice its competitors. So it's basically offering what many countries perceive to be a first-in-class product in 5G telecommunications technology at a lower price. So that's great, uh, you might be thinking, and many governments are still thinking that, um, except if you're the United States, in which case, uh, for years now, uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, U.S. lawmakers, U.S. officials have been talking about Huawei and other Chinese telecommunications companies as potential fronts for Chinese intelligence. And this is where things get complicated. Uh, the U.S. has basically uh, decided to regard Huawei infrastructure as a strategic threat. So Huawei infrastructure, for example, is not being used in the United States for critical uh, communications technology. It's basically been banned. And then there's a whole other basket of issues related to Huawei, uh, including some of you have probably heard that Huawei's chief financial officer was arrested in Canada in late uh, 2018 um, over uh, directing knowingly supposed violations of U.S. sanctions about uh, telecommunications technology going to North Korea and Iran. Uh, so that's one issue. Um, but also last year, the Commerce Department, the U.S. Commerce Department, took action against Huawei, uh, banning it from basically purchasing major parts and software from the U.S., so, which, among other things, meant that many of Huawei's very popular smartphones, which are actually very well reviewed by um, a lot of sort of tech review sites and the like, um, no longer have access to, uh, to Google's um, software stack. They can still use the open source Android operating system, but they don't have access to the Google apps, for example. So that's my kind of attempt to very quickly sum up uh, the totality of, you know, kind of what 5G is and what exactly we're talking about. Uh, but the real reason, Prashant, uh, you know, we're having this conversation this week is really pegged around the decision made by the United Kingdom. Um, mm -hmm. So earlier this week, the UK announced uh, a long-awaited decision on Huawei. Uh, and the decision that they went with 
Um, it's it's complicated, but basically it's not the decision that the United States was looking for, right? The UK is a major ally of the United States. It's part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing um, arrangement. Uh, it's part of the special relationship with the United States. But the UK, uh, against US advice, decided that it would permit Huawei as a supplier for its 5G telecommunications um um, a networking equipment, uh, and this has led to now a debate. So that's kind of where we are, uh, Prashant. But uh, you know, I kind of just wanted to ask you. I mean, uh, were you sort of? Um, what do you make of this uh, UK decision? Do you uh, are you are you surprised by it, or, or is this kind of always where uh, you thought London would end up? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we got some indications of of where the UK would end up, um, you know, in, in past months as well, because they were sort of in the face of uh, the US position, which was one, as you correctly characterized, one of sort of clarity, right? Sort of, you know, we're in the strategic competition with China. And so, you know, given the fact that we think that Huawei is something that's associated with the Chinese government, uh, we don't think from a perspective of national security that we will be able to uh, address the risks uh, that we think are is evident in order to take advantage of the massive opportunities in, in 5G, which you talked about uh, earlier, right? So that's the U.S. position. Um, but as you noted, I mean, the, the real challenge for U.S. policymakers is trying to get allies and partners to adopt the views of, of the U.S. or at least not contradict what the United States thinks in terms of these, these policies, right? Because you have these range of intelligence sharing mechanisms that the U.S. has, including with uh, the U.K., which is a member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network, so this this could pose you know significant national security challenges. But the U.K. had indicated previously that they would sort of you know in, even in the space of U.S. clarity on on 5G and Huawei, that they would conduct their own internal review and sort of see where they were at. And I think we saw indications previously um, that Britain may decide to hedge a little bit in the sense of you know it would acknowledge the risks of uh, Huawei and working with Chinese providers, but it won't entirely uh, prevent Huawei from operating in, in the UK's networks. And I think that's kind of the hedged position that we saw the UK come up with, sort of mm -hmm. recognizing that Huawei is, is a high-risk vendor, but also saying, well, we're not gonna entirely exclude Huawei from this. And I think it, it it's not surprising in the sense of, you know, this reflects broader uh, dilemmas within Britain as well, right? This is a contested debate for British national interests, which are separate from U.S. national uh, interests. So, I mean, the U.K. is looking at a situation, you know, post-Brexit where it's worried about uh, its economy, it's trying to take advantage of opportunities, including 5G. Uh, but on the other hand, it's trying to make sure that it doesn't uh, make the United States, which is a traditional ally, uh, angry with it. But it's also trying not to jeopardize its intelligence sharing partnerships and, and relationships. So the U.K. is walking its own fine line there. I think the the big question uh, which you posed up front, and I think we we can talk about more, is uh, at least from my perspective, you know, when you talk to intelligence uh, practitioners who are familiar with five G and national security implications, uh, they're very clear about the risks that are there from working with people, uh, you know, sort of providers like Huawei that are tied to the Chinese government. But I haven't heard a convincing case that you know there can be adequate measures to sort of, you know, what, what the British are now saying or, or claiming that they can somehow insulate themselves from the risks of, of Huawei by sort of talking about distinctions between the core of the network and the edge of the network and sort of these very fine divisions. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't sort of sense that we, we've gotten there yet in terms of how specifically this is going to be addressed. And I think that's really the core of the situation. Are these risks actually manageable or or is it just a very clear notion of, you know, we, we simply can't manage these national security risks. 
Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely the central question. And it's really it's really sort of a frustrating debate in many ways. Right. Uh, Because a lot of the information, a lot of the fundamental questions are basically difficult to decisively answer uh, in the public domain. Right. So, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, the question of whether or to what extent Huawei is linked to to the Chinese government is a topic of perennial debate. And you have sort of a variety Mm -hmm. of positions. Right. So the Chinese government and Huawei officially claim that there is no such link. Huawei is a Shenzhen based private tech company. Uh, true, it does happen to be founded by Ron Zhengfei, who's a former uh, PLA um, senior official with ties to the Communist Party. Um, and then you kind of get to the other point that people make, which is that given uh, China's national security laws and legal system, uh, there is no conceivable scenario in which if, you know, even if you concede that Huawei is, you know, a good faith private company, uh, which I personally don't really buy that, uh, you know, there isn't a scenario where if the if the Chinese um, state made requests of Huawei to share data or share uh, even even raw data uh, from its networking um, telecommunications infrastructure, that Huawei could reasonably refuse to do that, uh, that the that the company would would uh, comply with that. Right. And, and, and there's a difference there if you look at, um, you know, a company like Apple, for example, in the United States that has been quite famous for you know refusing collaboration with law enforcement in cases where um, law enforcement agencies have requested Apple to sort of bypass the encryption in its in its consumer devices. Right. So with Huawei, I think there's less of a concern that that sort of a divide exists. Um, although, you know, when it comes to a smoking gun sort of showing that Huawei has um, decisively, you know, transferred uh, data to the Chinese state, there are sort of, you know, there is still a running debate about the extent to which these connections have made. Uh, but with the UK, I mean, you know, it is true that in the UK, there has been an acknowledgement of the risk. And if I had to sort of describe the UK strategy, it's basically risk mitigation, right? So mitigation, you're acknowledging that there is some baseline risk that, let's say, you know, when there is a conflict, um, or, you know, when there's a war, potentially, or something that China could completely cripple the UK's network, right? I mean, the probability of that happening might be, you know, let's say smaller than 1%. Um, and in order to mitigate that risk, uh, what the UK is doing is what you referred to, uh, making that core edge distinction. But again, here, there's a debate. Uh, and again, it's a very difficult debate to parse if you're uh, talking about this without specific internal knowledge about how these networks are going to be built out. Uh, so writing for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, uh, Simon Gilding, a former head of signals intelligence in Australia, uh, so really someone, you know, that is in the know and a former practitioner, um, wrote, you know, he's written this very interesting article uh, that I can link to in the show notes, basically completely uh, questioning the core logic of the core edge distinction when it comes to 5G mm-hmm. or any other kind of networking. So what is the core edge distinction? It's basically this idea that uh, the two kinds of uh, benefits of 5G that I described at the beginning, um, you know, one of, uh, you know, the average Asia geopolitics podcast listener downloading their latest episode in the UK or watching cat videos on YouTube, all of that would happen basically at the edge of the network. And then at the core, you would have sort of core national security functions, including classified um, intra-government communications, intelligence sharing with the United States within five eyes. All of that would be, first of all, uh, encrypted using strong encryption algorithms and functioning ideally on network infrastructure that is completely insulated from whatever Huawei will be providing. So that is what the UK is saying. 
SIGINT mm-hmm. practitioners, though, like Simon Gilding, are very skeptical that that can be operationalized in practice. Um, I am not personally qualified to really adjudicate this disagreement, right? GCHQ and a former Australian SIGINT practitioner. Uh, so, you know, these are people who have really been at the forefront of these discussions about signals intelligence and Huawei and interceptions um, of, of signals intelligence uh, within the Five Eyes framework for some time. And they've come to drastically different conclusions. Uh, so there is still this debate about what are the risks going ahead. There is something to be said, though, for the Australian and American approach uh, and the approach favored by some con- other countries like Japan, which is that if you don't allow Huawei into your network, um, that's not only mitigating risk, but it's doing so in a way that doesn't even create the baseline risk that something could go seriously wrong, right? And one of the most interesting things that I think comes out of Simon Gilding's analysis in Aspie is that he talks about, you know, uh, sort of the thought experiment where if he was an Australian, you know, if uh, as the as the head of SIGINT for Australia, uh, if an Australian company had provided, um, let's say, backdoor access to telecommunications equipment, 5G telecommunications equipment, what could he have done with that when he was running SIGIN for Australia? And he seems to imply that he could have done quite a bit in a plausibly deniable way. So if that is the fear with Huawei and the Chinese state, um, then that is a serious concern. Uh, but really, I think, you know, um, my sense is, Prashant, that all of this, um, maybe because this debate is so insulated from, you know, hard facts and having access to kind of cases to talk about, I think maybe as a result of that, it's been very difficult for the United States to convince other countries to treat Huawei as anything other than what they see Huawei as, which is a company that is at the cutting edge of 5G technology that is underpricing many of its competitors. So basically, it's a very compelling option if you're especially a developing country in Asia, right? So if you look at many countries, for example, in Southeast Asia, uh, in particular Malaysia, which has sort of been uh, one of the um, most uh, pro-Huawei countries under uh, Mahathir, but also potentially uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, who are looking at letting Huawei have um, trial access. India is currently in the throes of a major debate around this issue. Um, South Korea, potentially, uh, even even though Samsung is a leader in 5G technology as well. Uh, so the United States hasn't really been successful in convincing other countries, right? And I think there's a messaging problem here, too. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, but, you know, I think a really good example is if you look at what Deputy National Security Advisor uh, Matt Pottinger recently said at the Ricina Dialogue in New Delhi, uh, you know, he sort of used this kind of analogy that, you know, can you, um, this is exactly what he said. He said, can you imagine Reagan and Thatcher having a conversation in the 1980s saying, let's have the KGB build our telecommunication systems because they're giving us a great discount. I mean, I see the point that he's making, but when you talk to, you know, when you talk to your allies and partners, uh, basically implying that, you know, that they either are incapable of doing the due diligence or they haven't done the due uh, diligence on Huawei, it's not likely to be a convincing sales pitch uh, to keep away from Huawei, right? So the United States hasn't really had a lot of success with this. And I think we also saw some of this with the UK. There was a lot of actually very sharp language from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo towards the UK over the Huawei issue, implying that, you know, intelligence sharing might take a hit, which would be very serious in a in the context of a US, uh, in, in the context of the US-UK alliance in particular. Um, so, you know, just um, looking at Southeast Asia a bit, I mean, what else has really been drawing these countries uh, towards uh, Huawei as a as a supplier? What do you think the United States would have to do to really kind of get them to take the potential challenger yeah. more seriously? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's that's really the big question, right? I, I think, as you correctly pointed out, the benefits of five G is something that you know you could sort of make very clear very quickly in sort of a you know an open source context, but the risks and the costs are something that 
you know, are either less clear or contested or something that, uh, you know, might lie further down the line and we're not clear yet. And I think that's why the British case is really important, because I think one of the things that uh, the UK is worried about, and I think, you know, the rest of the world is watching this very carefully, is, you know, how will the United States deal with an ally or a partner that is seen to take a different position, which it enjoys intelligence sharing agreements with, right? So far, we've seen this US approach where the US is saying it's, you know, it's getting tough in Huawei, it expects other countries to follow suit. But most of the other countries have said, you know, very carefully, you know, we're considering it, we're examining it, or, yeah, we're going to allow some trials for Huawei. And I think that's where most of the Southeast Asian countries are. Uh, it's really important to to emphasize that, I mean, this the notion of 5G and it actually taking hold globally is something that, you know, yeah, it's, it's sort of a future-oriented technology, there's potential. But Huawei's relationships, I mean, they've st- built these relationships already. So, and, and that's the case for the UK as well, right? So the idea of the United States, you know, coming in and sort of saying, okay, well, you can't do this, you know, because we have this certain line or, you know, you should make these same decisions based on our national interests. For a lot of the Asian countries that are involved that are not U.S. allies, that's something that's a little bit difficult for them to stomach, right? Because as you said, I mean, the benefits are very clear, but the risks and costs are a little bit more sort of contested. Uh, I would say, you know, in most of Southeast Asia, most of these countries are still in sort of the trial stage. And it's important to emphasize, you know, in most of the developing country context, in some cases, these are countries that are just started adopting 4G, let alone 5G, right? right. So this is something that it, there's a little bit of variance depending on, you know, sort of the developed or developing country context that you're talking about. But I think it comes back to this broader question, right? So, you know, who it, who gets the benefit of the doubt? I think if you're on the on the side of sort of the benefits of of Huawei and these emerging technologies like 5G, you'd sort of say, well, the benefit of the doubt is on those people who are claiming that these risks or costs are are very exorbitant, and they need to prove to us that there's actually no way for us to mitigate these risks. Well. Uh, it's very difficult to do that in a sort of an open source setting without us being in an actual state where we actually have to try this, right? Um, and on the the other side of it, uh, the folks who are claiming that the risks and, and costs of Huawei are are very clear are saying, well, the evidence that we have is that you know there are clear links between what China is doing and what its companies are doing, and it really is incumbent on you to prove that you can manage these risks given the fact that we know that there's inherent risks working with Chinese companies that are known to have links to the state. And so you could really just go around in circles, depending on who you give the benefit of the doubt to. And I think at the end of the day, the reason why the British case is really interesting is because we have a real-time example of how the United States and other countries will actually either impose costs, uh, depending on where other countries land on on the 5G debate, and the extent to which they might actually either uh, sort of defer these decisions down the line, like many of these countries have done, or they might actually move towards uh, a situation of alternatives. I think that's a big question where for most of the Asian states, they're actually thinking about this. So Huawei has these advantages in terms of 5G networks, but in terms of who has the advantage or, or who can compete, I mean, there's actually a very small list of competitors, right? Right. So whether you talk about Nokia and and these other folks, and you have countries like Vietnam that are saying, well, yeah, you know, we're going to sort of look at our own national champions like Vietel and sort of build them up. 
But these are not things that are easy to replicate. I mean, it's a very expensive endeavor. So, you know, this is not going to be something that is going to be adjudicated in a matter of months. It's going to take years to play out. That's right. Yeah. I think I think really it's about, you know, building the foundations for growth into the future. For like many of these developing countries that don't even have widespread 4G infrastructure, the idea would be mm-hmm. to leapfrog directly and then hope that, you know, 5G does allow for... Uh, a robust uh, telecommunications infrastructure for the future. I think, you know, let's talk a little bit more about these risks, because I think, you know, at least the sense that I get is that I think there is a real concern, like even with the core edge distinction that the UK is making, uh, one of the concerns, and this is probably not going to be a concern that's going to be too uh, gain a lot of sympathy, I guess, in Asia necessarily. Um, But I think there is sort of a rights and privacy issue, right? So if you're the Chinese Ministry of State Security and you have... Huawei-based infrastructure that you can potentially tap into in a plausibly deniable way or even an undetectable way as U.S. Mm-hmm. intelligence agencies assessed in 2018 that that was one of the risks that the um, if Huawei was using its networks to conduct uh, espionage for the Chinese state, it would be entirely undetectable. If this was happening, it could potentially affect uh, you know people like overseas Chinese dissidents, um, their communications could be compromised, uh, persons of interest to the Chinese state, just people you know living their lives, um, sending texts and checking their emails if they're doing so in a in a non secure way, and and that uh, that in itself I think is a risk that is also worth thinking about mitigating, right? And if you're using this core edge model, you're relegating a lot of that activity to the edge, and and that in in a way I think mm. is quite dangerous, right? So this is less about, you know, in a conflict, China tapping into US, UK, Five Eyes information sharing, uh, you know, which is being done in a highly secure and encrypted way. Um, it's more about sort of the day-to-day uh, use of 5G, right? But I mean, many of these concerns also exist with existing network infrastructure. Um, and there mm. have been sort of cases of uh, Chinese state-linked intelligence sort of penetrating um, intranets at various um organizations to sort of glean internal data. And if that can be done at a national scale with something like a 5G infrastructure provided by Huawei, I think that is a serious concern. But there is that undetectability idea, right? I mean, I think I think the the less reasonable case is that, you know, this is some kind of massive critical infrastructure vulnerability that's going to like cripple the United States or, or cripple the UK uh, in, a, in a conflict, right? Because I mean, first of all, that kind of a capability, you only really use it once and then it's burned. And then obviously, you know, all of that infrastructure is going to be stripped down and that vulnerability is going to be removed. The other issue is that it's been interesting to watch sort of Huawei on the back foot over the last year. So ever since getting, you know, getting um, the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the sanctions first against ZTE, another Chinese firm that was under scrutiny for sanctions violations. And uh, finally, the U.S. Um, the US uh, sanctions against Huawei last year. Uh, the company's really been trying to make a case for itself that it's not linked to Chinese intelligence, it's not linked to the Chinese state. So that that in itself, I think, suggests some level of incentives for Huawei to play it safe, right? I mean, even, even mm-hmm. if they are sort of setting up this infrastructure, I really doubt that we're going to hear about a major case um, of... Uh, of you know Huawei linked infrastructure potentially passing on information to the Chinese state, and there's the other issue that I think that fundamentally this comes down to a level of risk tolerance, right? I mean, um, a lot of the public assessments that U.S. intelligence agencies, including the FBI and the CIA, have made about Huawei risks talk about undetectable, um, undetectable espionage. And if what they're saying is that many, much of this activity is undetectable, there might simply not be enough evidence, even for the U.S to make a waterproof case to the UK. Uh, because if there had been, I think this would have been shared throughout private channels, and I think the UK would have taken it seriously. Uh, so I think this is really um, a very, very fuzzy debate. Um, and ultimately, I think you're right, Prashant, that 
yeah, you know, when you're looking at the UK and planning for its post-Brexit future, I mean, there is that aspect that the UK has, I think, had a very different commercial relationship with China, certainly as a junior partner compared to the United States. Uh, so there is, I think, primarily a commercial consideration happening right now. The national security debate around 5G is something that I think Americans more so than anyone, maybe, you know, the Australians and the Japanese a little bit, um, uh, are thinking about. Uh, so that's, I think, uh, really where we are right now. And maybe that will change the next few years, because uh, I think what's clear is that the 5G debate is just getting started. It's far from over. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, as the gilding piece that you mentioned earlier, you know, noted, uh, you know, ultimately, if you were to kind of boil it down, uh, and this is a very complex debate, it really is a question to a certain extent about trust, right? And the problem with trust is, I mean, it's good to boil it down in that sense, but it is, there's part of it that is objective based on the record that is presented to you, but there's an aspect of it that is very subjective. Um, and so the, this question of the benefit of the doubt and to what extent you're going to actually give it and who you're going to give it to, these are very difficult questions uh, to address. Uh, but my worry is, you know, this very contested and very complex debate around 5G and, you know, what actually we know and what we don't know is happening in a context of which, you know, there is a, a quest, particularly here in Washington, right, for a lot of clarity. So, you know, we're engaged in this U.S.-China competition and you're either, either with us or against us. And 5G is going to be a measure of whether you are an ally with us and you're going to trust us on this question or whether you are, you know, closer to the Chinese and, and really not part of an alliance network that we consider to be very important for our national security interests. And I think that's not necessarily a, a perspective that you get directly from the administration, but it, certainly if you read the headlines and you talk to U.S. senators, that's certainly a, a sort of perception that you get, right? Going back to the Cold War and sort of, you know, would you allow the Soviets to come build some of your technologies? And as we've shown in this discussion, it, it's a lot more complex than that, mm -hmm. um, including on the question of risk mitigation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just as a closing note, I will say that um, the U.S. approach to the 5G issue in some ways reminds me, and I know there's differences here, but in some ways it reminds me of the way in which the Obama administration reacted to the AIIB. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, you know, I mean, obviously, I think it is a very seriously different issue, given that we're talking about national security issues. But in terms of the reaction to allies having a different perspective, um, I think uh, that's uh, something that I think we're, again, uh, sort of running into here. Uh, but, yeah, I think, uh, I think you know, this won't be the last uh, we, we talk of the 5G issue. So we'll uh, definitely come back to take a look, uh, especially when uh, certain Asian states are likely to make uh, major decisions in the year ahead. But, uh, Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, so for listeners, if you've been listening for a podcast for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. That really helps the show, helps uh, people discover it as well. Uh, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of providers. And if you've been a listener, but you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please do so. It really uh, uh, you know, will help you keep in touch with future episodes. Uh, and, and we really uh, love to receive your feedback as well. If you uh, have recommendations for topics or countries that you'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, on the show. And finally, before we close, just a note from our sponsor. So uh, this episode of the Asia Geopolitics podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. 
Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.